Hello and welcome to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and I know just how lonely it is to lead a company today, let alone try to change anything. I was on stage with 10,000 people in New York City and asked the crowd, who loves change? Everybody raised their hands. And then I asked, who wants to go first? That means, who wants to change first? Well, crickets. Actually, only two people out of this enormous crowd raise their hands. And one of them is on today's podcast because she knows how to drive change because it's mostly unwelcome most of the time, even though we're asked to do it by our boss and our boards. As a senior executive, we all live the irony of how everyone talks a big line about disruption and innovation, and then no one can stand the damn uncertainty and discomfort that change brings. Who the heck can you talk to about this stuff? Well, that's me. I'm Mark Thompson, the CEO coach. The board and the boss wants change, but doesn't appreciate how hard it is to build it. And you just can't scale a business any faster than the people who run it. So I'm a former chairman, CEO, and board member who loves to accelerate growth and to help you think that through and take on that transformation. So here's what we're gonna do today. I wanna talk about how Donna Render is leading something that has never been done before. And in fact, like many legendary entrepreneurs, she's quite comfortable with building something that the establishment didn't appreciate at the time. She disrupted professional sports. As a professional basketball player and before that a collegiate all-star, Donna was recruited by Adam Silver to lead the Women's National Basketball Association, the WNBA. At its most vulnerable time, she served six years as the president and commissioner of the league, and she really put it on the map. She set in motion a movement in women's sports that was irreversible. She led double-digit growth in all the key business metrics. And then she'd go on to become a senior executive at the PGA and a sports media producer, ranked among the top 10 most powerful women in sports and one of Newsweek's 100 most influential people in the business of sports. Fox Sports Network ranked Donna in the top 10 most powerful women in sports. Currently, she's the founder and CEO of Render Limited. She just did an incredible global event for empowering women and young girls featuring two sports legends, Billie Jean King and Ilana Kloss, talking about how when you've been given the charter to make a change, like many of us in organizations are today, how is it that you go against all odds? How do you build that entrepreneurial spirit when it might not be appreciated by the very people who asked you to lead that change? Sharing with you now, Donna Arender. Donna, I'd love to, to get your, your sensibilities about how if you were onboarding a new leader um, in any of the organizations that you've touched, you know, what, what do you wish you knew uh, when you first started out and, and made the big leap in terms of from your athletic career to your organizational leadership career? What do you wish you knew? You know, it's so interesting because I don't know that I've ever made the huge distinction between managing or leading a company versus managing and leading a life where I was always a person that was doing something that hadn't been done before. So I was always put in a position where I had to be comfortable with the fact that nobody thought I should be doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I had to always have this sense of belief in myself that this is what I should be doing. And it's kind of, it's, I, I liken it to this. Um, I was never the tallest athlete. I played basketball. 
I wasn't the fastest, right? I didn't get the most rebounds, but there was nobody, nobody who would outwork me. You can work as hard, I can give you that. Um, and what I learned through that process is that you develop these muscles that, that teach you that you have more to give than you ever thought possible. And that is something I've drawn on in every sense. So when we think of classic leadership, you're thinking, well, I understand that this person's here and this person's here. Now, I, I, I kind of approach it in a way, and we talked a little bit about the system, in a belief of capability, in a belief of being able to be a team member. I played a team sport and that we can work it out and I can facilitate this team moving forward together. I wouldn't call myself a leader. Maybe sometimes I was the captain, but that felt so comfortable to me that when I moved into each of my next slots all the way from being a commissioner, mm. I, I didn't feel uncomfortable. Does that make sense? It does, it seems amazing because most people are uh, overwhelmed uh, at the prospect, even with the great achievement and impact they'd had in their prior life, when they choose what's next, there's usually a certain notable insecurity around developing those new muscles for the first time and, and maybe not being instantly as world-class as we were, uh, had developed over many, many years to be a professional basketball player. Um, no, but that, that's, and I understand that, right? And it's, and I never went in thinking I was world-class. I thought I came in with capabilities to figure it out. And when I look to bring someone into an organization that I'm leading, I want people who can figure it out, who are comfortable with not knowing what mm. the time we're living in, um, and then say, okay, let's figure this out. Because everything is always new, in, in so many different situations. How do you know if somebody has the skills to figure yeah. it out? The problem, that, that's a big problem because I, I and this, this, is not, oh, this has only been proven through my years of experience. You don't really know somebody until about two years. It takes mm -hmm. two years. I don't, you're the HR expert, so I'm gonna defer to you. Um, there's things on a piece of paper you can check off. There is that interaction for interviews. There's different kinds of skills. You can put them through tests. But I don't know that we really reveal ourselves right away. I think it is a process. And the real essence of people who I was working with, I look at my watch, I look at the calendar. It's like, oh, it's two years. It's, it's time now. I get it. I see you. You probably see me. You know what I mean? I don't know if we ever talk about that enough but i really do believe it's a revelatory process that happens over time i mean there are people you know right away not a fit mm -hmm. right but, but there are others that you know we all kind of grow into each other <laughs> it makes a lot of sense when you think about the process of taking the leap of faith to go from a profession which you invested heart and soul as you said Certainly there may be people who've worked as hard, but nobody was more committed. Correct. And or should so, have been committed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so with that insanity, with that over exuberance that really allowed you to achieve a, a professional level of game, then to have to face what is inevitable about making a transition and deciding what's next. You're a person with many choices. 
you've you already had some influence and impact because of that. How did you go about choosing what's next? Because you could do a lot of stuff. So I, you know, here I am. I'm playing uh, professional basketball. It's a dream come true. Yeah, I loved every second of it. All of the wonder, joy, teamwork, pain, heartache, all of it. Um, and yes, it was time to leave. And I was still pretty young. I was 23 years old. And mm. I've already done my, now I'm done with my first career. I was sad. I felt like I hadn't even reached my potential. Like when we, when I grew up in my era, we didn't play basketball from the time we were six or mm. seven. We came to the game later. We didn't get great coaching until we were later. And I had one of the best coaches in the country, but I was not ready to move on. So how did you know that it was time to move on? The league folded. There were no more employment opportunities. <laughs> it was over. I, I, I was one of 10 players, I believe they told me, or a dozen, that played in every single season. We had three seasons. I played in all three seasons. I played in three different cities. Um, and then the league folded. And I wrote, there's an article, I should send it to you, in the New York Times that I wrote. You know, like, here I am, washed up at 23. What do I do? Um, I, uh, through my work in playing basketball, I, inter I interacted with the media a lot. Now, and so therefore I had my own cable television show while I was playing basketball. Now it's really, the irony here is beyond me. It was called Out of Left Field. It was on local cable television. And I actually interviewed Jewish athletes and sports people. Um, I, I went to, you know, I went to graduate school to be a social worker. Okay. And was that after the... After the basketball? No, it was before. So I, I went to undergraduate. I played on one of the best teams in the nation. Right. Made history, played in Madison Square Garden, first women's game ever. I graduated. Again, a moment of like, oh my God, I can't stop playing basketball. They're going to start this league. I had gotten to social work school. Again, everyone told me, you'll never get in. You're too young. They took me. I said, what do you mean? I know, I know everything about the world. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you start studying and you realize how little you know. And what I would do is I would literally go and I would counsel young teenage pregnant girls at a high school. I'd get in my car, I'd do my homework in my car, and then I would go to practice and play basketball. Hmm. And after a year of that, I thought that was a little much. I can always go back to school, but I could never play basketball again. And so let me commit myself to playing basketball, but also commit to changing the world, being somebody of value in the world. And I realized sports is incredible that way. And so in a sense, I feel like I have realized my social work through, through the world of sports. Tell, tell me more about how sports serves the world. Well, you know, sports is a convener, right? It, it elicits passion, right? It's, it's a teacher. You don't have to be elite to play in it. It gathers communities and people from all over. You don't have to look alike to play together. You don't you have to sound alike. You don't even have to be of the same political party. You just want to play. And, and so that's important. And, um, and it gives people platforms, as we see now in this time of social justice, where athletes really have a voice that is so impactful. And they're trying to figure out where their voice is. And the whole business community is trying to figure out where do they fit in? Because we are a long ways from the days when um, Richard Lapchick created sports apartheid, right? The apartheid system in the 1960s. And then you had John Carlos. And then you have, um, you know, all of these other athletes. Now we're expecting athletes to speak their voice because their platform and their connectivity to people and fans and society is so, so strong. 
And so I can walk in, literally, I can walk in with a cancer sci uh, scientist, literally. I can walk in with Dr. Jim, um, or it was doing AIDS, and they'll be like, this is Dr. Jim, he just saved 40 million people. And this is Donna, she played professional, Donna! <laughs> and then you're like, okay, now what do I do with that? Interesting. Right. right, because that was a platform. And so having migrated into this professional sports platform, and as you said, starting the cable show, what was next from there? How did you make the decisions next? Because you could have gone many directions. Yeah, I, I really did love the media and the communications. I spent a lot of time with the sports writers. I spent a lot of time with the television people. And I said, you know, I really like this. And so I went to New York, um, unconnected, by the way. We all understand connections matter, but I was not the daughter of somebody or the sister of somebody. I wasn't even a friend of somebody, <laughs> but, but I got friends. And they're very important. It's one of the things I teach our kids and all of the work that I do today, all of our girls, that connection is the most important thing. Meet people, know people, stay connected to people. And eventually I got a job um, as a PA, production assistant at ABC Sports, at the height of ABC Sports. I did a little announcing um, work on the phone, like a gambling phone thing on the side. And one thing led to another and eventually they hired me. And um, it was great. It was a, it was, it was great. It was great. And I worked and learned so much about production. And I also worked in a big company. I mean, you know, right? You know, we, this is ABC sports, then it's cap cities. This is big company work. And you learn how learn how big companies work and how they interact with each other, how the different departments work, the politics of all of that. You begin to take that in. And then I got recruited and I got recruited to go to a startup in a sense, it was rainbow programming. So today it would be analogous to an internet company, a digital company, because cable television was disruptive, Benita. Like I, I sat in the offices of ABC who owned 20% of ESPN and they hated each other. They hated each other. It was so right because one represented this disruptive technology and the other guys were like the kings and queens of it all. Um, but I said yes and I went and worked for this startup called Rainbow Programming. I worked for um, Jimmy and his father, Chuck, who own, you know, Jimmy owns the Knicks, the Garden, all of them. How large was this company? At the time, you know, they owned a lot. It was the beginning of regional cable television. So they were, you know, I don't know if they were 100 million, 200, I mean, but small compared to ABC, it was small. Um, but different vibe, right? Everything is, you look at the world differently, a lot more creative license. It's like, it was wonderful. And then from there, I got recruited again to go to a small, a real startup, which was the beginning of PGA Tour Productions. So there was NBA Entertainment, and there was, NBA Entertainment was and NFL Films. So this was gonna be it. I interviewed with a former professional golfer and the former president of CBS, and they said, will you come run our production company? I'm in my mid-20s. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I did. And I ran it for a couple of years, and um, the guy was very volatile, very, very, very volatile. And I said, you know what? People were calling me to do all sorts of things. I'll just start my own company. And I did. And I realized, like, this is so valuable. I, and I talk about this, and I don't know if you was, I had an enormous experience. I worked for a big company. Yes. Big company thinking, big company organization, big company motivation, big operations. 
I work for a mid-sized company that's kind of new, different mentality, again, different operational procedures. Then I worked for a startup, but ultimately I worked out of my own pocket. And I learned so much. I think you learn about business working out of your own pocket, especially when you don't have much in your pockets. <laughs> I bet. Absolutely. You mentioned this notion of how with it's particularly high impact for you, and now you're teaching it through W, this notion of building a community, a network, a, a way of building support, I guess, expertise and mentorship. Could you talk about that? It's something that is core, I think, to anyone's career and certainly core to any organizational collaboration, for sure. And, and did you take your community with you when you went from working for someone else to then working for yourself? I feel like I have, I have been so fortunate to collect communities everywhere I've gone. I feel like people are the most essential and in working with people, I never felt, I never wanted to feel like I was just about the work for them. So I wanted to make sure that they weren't just about the work for me. And so I have a community of people that I have known for 20 years, 30 years from all different aspects of my business life. And I felt that was really always important. And sometimes I'm, sometimes when you think you're alone, because I think we all do, I have to take a step back and say, oh my goodness, I, I know a lot of people who I can call. But it's also giving yourself permission to do that. I feel like that sometimes with, with our group, it's like, wow, this is a wonderful community. Who will I call or should I call or how can I, you know what I mean? Some of that comes from here, even though the collaboration that you guys reference is so incredibly powerful. When, when, you, joined, when you joined our our wonderful group every weekend. Yeah. I, so I was inspired at this notion and vision that you had for the foundation that you're leading. Could you talk about this notion of support and networking and, and the, the charter that you're really leading oh, there? Thank you, that's, that's so, so, so really nice. I, I spent um, six years working for the WNBA. Um, people know me, they know that I am passionate about basketball. I love all sports. I spent 17 years working in men's professional golf, um, but I love basketball. It was the hardest job I ever had, ever. Um, but also the most rewarding, it was personally fulfilling. Um, to be on the front line of culture and commerce where women and strong women were totally questioned to this day, we're still seeing that being played out, right? With women's sports. Um, and when I ultimately left after they, I did, I did accomplish humbly everything they said I couldn't. Um, I knew that my work around women and community, what I saw was something I wanted to stay with. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to leave that behind. I wanted that to come with me. I live in the South. In case you don't know, I'm from the North. I love it here. I'm not leaving. But I felt that as I traveled America, there are wonderful, great people everywhere. They don't necessarily raise their hands and say, here I am. You have to go find, find them and invite them in, especially women. Women want to be invited. And um, I learned so much about how women behave, even though I, I am a woman, grew up as a woman. Um, 
it doesn't mean you're aware or intentional, intentionally aware of how your behavior is, but I studied. Um, and so when I got back to Jacksonville, Florida, I had spent time uh, at an event in California that Maria, Maria Shriver, when she was the wife of Arnold, hosted. And I said, I love this, and I want to create this for my community. I want to go home to Jacksonville. There's great people there. There is a underperforming mentality, like we're a second tier, third tier city. If I'm going to now commit myself to be here, hmm, let's be first tier. What, I mean, why not? Why not is kind of my mantra. And so um, I decided that I wanted to create a platform all around, starting with women, realizing though, as you guys so, so adroitly point out that it's never about just anyone, it's about connecting all people. But I wanted to start with women because I think women deserve better and more and um, for themselves and then build community around that. And so Generation W was born. It started as a thought leadership program. My first year, there were 700 people that showed up and they honestly, they didn't have no idea what they were coming to, other than they believed that I was gonna do something that was gonna be good. Wow. So community and trust, um, and we built on that trust. And so we're nine years in now and we have a year round programming platform that's about thought leadership. It's very engaging with girls, women, and leadership and mentorship. Uh, it's built on the positive and the possible. It's built on the belief that connectivity is a superpower. And um, it's been, it, it, it fuels your soul, right? And, and if anything that we've learned around COVID, and there's so many things, um, one of them is just how important being connected is. And we, can, and we can say it out loud and it doesn't feel like it's soft. I remember when I was first selling this stuff, like, where are the metrics? What are you going to leave when you're done with this? What are you going to work out with? And I'm like, some things, and I know that you come out of the tech world, right? How do you quantify some of these, these things? Now we make up, we make up measurements. Let's, let's be honest. We do make up measurements and then we end up driving to fulfill those measurements at the expense of what we really want to accomplish. I think about <laughs> it's so powerful and, and, and the work that you're doing is, is, is so amazing. When uh, Benita was invited for the Global Connections for Women uh, Foundation in New York City to accept the uh, annual Business Leader of the Year Award at the Harvard Club last year. Yes, yes, you know, see, it's easy for me to brag about that. I love that. I'm just hitching my wagon to her star. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do that too, if there's room. <laughs> <laughs> and Vidya, just tell, share with Donna, I think it sounds like you're both in violent agreement about this framing of the fact that there is a sense of such powerlessness with the world swirling uh, as it is and with wave after wave of change that we're having to face that's that's creating a new normal and it, it, it can make you feel like uh, either a victim or worse um, and, and your power taken from you. Could you share briefly what that notion was about the fact that most of us feel like, you know, it's too big, it's too horrible, it's too hard. What can I do? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, at the Harvard Club, we were talking about you know, the, the very subtle difference in the way that we phrase a sentence can have a huge difference in meaning. And so we can either say, you know, what can I do? Or what can I do? 
And both of those are the same sentences, same words, same sounds, but the emphasis is on, on one, the first one, it's on me, and I, I'm a one person. And the second one is on the possibilities. So it's very inspiring that you are looking at the possibilities for all these women. I'm curious, how do you measure impact when it's a topic that's, you know, if it's, if it's money, we can measure it. If it's time, we can measure it. But if we're just measuring confidence and belonging and trust, how do we measure these things? Right. So there's a couple of ways. I mean, we do a lot of self-reporting. So before, let's say if we have a group of 400 girls, before they enter the room, we'll do a baseline questionnaire on, you know, do they believe they can be leaders? Do, are, do they have a lot of self-confidence? Do they think they can change the world? All those kinds of things. And then after the programming, we will then come back and ask them. And there's usually a significant leap in those values. Um, we'll check some of their academic records. And then there's ancillary stuff. So we just finished a pilot program in Charlotte. Um, we had 25 girls on Zoom. It was all about the positive and the possible. Wowsdom, which is the book that I have written on, it's called The Girl's Guide to the Positive and the Possible. And we, uh, and we use storytelling, authentic storytelling. Of, matter of fact, Benita, if I knew, knew you, I, I, actually both of you, I would ask you both to contribute a letter to your younger self. And it's, it's just... Um, wrapped in all of this great stuff that you don't learn in school, but in a way that you can engage. And, you know, one of the mothers wrote a letter to the head of Bank of America because they decided to sponsor it. And they said, you know, my daughter was really skeptical. She didn't really want to do this, but she did. And she loved it. And I think that she's really gained in confidence and she's got new friends she never would have had before. You know, as a parent, do I need a number three on a scale that says this or that? Like, right, that's enough to make a partner say, we're doing the right thing for our community. Now, there are other studies. There's the DAP study, which is a real metrics-oriented attitudinal survey that we also do with our girls after our weekly or monthly clubs. Because like everybody else, we do need to show what impact is. The best impact we have, though, is we ask the girls, would you share this with a friend? 100% yes. Wow, that's exciting. That is now, is it because they're missing school for a couple of hours? Or is it because they're, you know, but even so, missing school is not the worst thing either, right? There's other things. They, they, get, a, they get a lot out of it. We, we, we have so much um, qualitative evidence, that, and that's how we, that's how we measure challenging it's, it's challenging and it's so rewarding because as you said everybody notices it the entire ecosystem would i'm sure if you did a 360 or you did goldsmith stakeholder centered uh, evaluations you'd find that the whole ecosystem the people that you're working with the people who see you the people who who know you would all observe that level of confidence shift in those girls that whose lives you're touching when you think about how to rally and recruit other uh, individuals from many different fields to support the initiatives in the organizations that you've been leading. What, what are some of the, what's some of the advice that you give to others who are trying to recruit support uh, and trying to build that ecosystem? You've naturally done it. You, you started out as a, uh, an all out team player in a, in a team sport. How do you recruit the people throughout your life 
uh, as you say, they've come along with you. You've had, you've done a few things to make that possible. What, what, have, what have you done? I, I really believe fundamentally you want to find people who share values. Now, it doesn't mean you share the same answers, the same process, the same way to get there. Not looking for yes people, but I'm looking for a solid value system that we share. And, and I talked about this, it's a belief system. You yeah. have to believe not only in what you're doing, um, but that you can do it, even against all odds. I mean, I will tell you that every single day running the WNBA, every single day, someone said, you won't do this. This is going to fail. You're going to fold. This is a terrible idea. Like every day. And after, and you know what? I realized that I needed to be surrounded by people who believed. Not, not negating that it was hard because it was so hard. Yeah. Not negating that there were a lot of headwinds because there were, right? Just, but that we have to believe and we will figure out how to make this work. I think that's fundamental. Because so many people take that constant feedback of negativity and they, they internalize it. Yeah. And, and they internalize the inferiority that comes with that. How did yes. you prevent from doing that? In fact, there's a term for that that, we, that came up in our LPR calls, didn't it? It was internalized inferiority. Yeah. That you, you know, it's something that is a matter of what you learn. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I worked in an environment that had a lot of that. Um, I spent a lot of time in the arenas with the athletes, with the families, with the fans. I could feel the value of what we were doing. And I'll never forget my husband, because I, I commuted. I, I, my husband and my kids were in Florida, and I'm in New York. And uh, he said, you, will, you cannot quit. Not that I was thinking of it. This is too important. Like He saw how important the success of this business was in a much broader context. And talk about a belief system, right? Talk about the size of your heart. Talk about motivation for making this business work. And so what I did one day, literally, I closed my door. I went like this. I will not listen to any, if David taught me anything, God bless his soul, is to not hear no anymore. Because if I did, I could not operate. I couldn't move one step in front of the other. And I, and I knew it was too important otherwise. So I just kind of said, no more. And I know that's really hard to do. It didn't mean that I wasn't individually pierced. We're all individually pierced. So you always got to find a little team that's there to be your team, to pick you up, right? Heal, you know, close the wound, put a little bandage on it, right? Tap you on the head and say, okay, go ahead, keep playing. Because you can't do it alone. You're so right. When you say David, is that your husband or is that David Stern? David Stern. Tell yes. me about him. He was there when the WNBA was being created. You know, I, I wrote a letter to his wife and said, you know, it, it, without David, it never would have happened. David had the vision. He, he didn't listen to the no's. I thought he made a great business decision um, to create the WNBA. And he really believed in it. Uh, that said, he was a very, very um, t hard taskmaster. 
very, very, very hard taskmaster who had real specific visions of how he wanted things to be done and how people should behave and how many hours you needed to be at work and all those other kinds of things, which actually produced excellence. You can't argue with how successful the MBA has been done. Um, but it was tough. And he made me tough, made me tougher. <laughs> I love your metaphor of finding that little team who's going to be always there for you. Uh, maybe loving critics, and yet you know they're there for you. Uh, and, and it makes a big difference in your life. When would you say was the moment you felt the most in struggle to achieve your goals? You seem like a, an extraordinarily high confidence person with a belief system all along. Is there, is there a glimpse you could let us into of a, a moment when you felt a bit hopeless? And, and Oh my gosh. So I, yeah, absolutely, like I leave the, I leave the PGA tour. I work in the office of the commissioner. I'm one of the top executives. I have an office, I have a corner office. I have access to the plane. I pretty much could, you know, initiate any business that, you know, if I put it out there, people are like, okay, go ahead, go try it. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And I loved our athletes. I'm still friends with them to this day. Um, and then I decide I'm going to leave. Adam Silver calls me and I decide I'm going to leave. And I remember packing up my stuff. And I remember walking into Fifth Avenue and first our, our office. I remember going to a actually women's, the NCAA women's final four. And I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't breathe. What did I do? I left my family behind. Right? I left what was very comfortable, incredibly comfortable behind. Um, I had no idea the shape of the business. As a matter of fact, if I've ever, whenever anyone gives me advice, I said it wasn't the questions I asked to get a new job, it's the ones I didn't ask that still kind of haunt me. Right? So I would say, let me see the P&L. Great. I didn't ask how long the contracts were good on the revenue side. And when I walked in, $11 million walked out the door. Yes. <laughs> I should have known that, right? I should have known that. Well, I mean, I hate when that happens. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and, and it does. And, and, you know, you had the courage then to lean in. So you, that's when your belief system of, well, let's make this happen kicks in. What, what, what happened next? Well, then I realized that there was a lot of work. So I thought, and, I, and I've spoken about this, but I, I thought when I came in, there was some disconnection. Okay, lack of belief system, okay. I hadn't realized that the wires were like, had pulled, been pulled out of the walls. It wasn't like plugging a plug-in. The wiring was all gone. So I realized that I had to step by step by step build a belief system, find the believers, there's always believers. And then you have your next layer, right? Your next layer of people who want to believe, but they need an invitation or some help, right? There's another, I don't know if there's three layers or four layers. The fourth layer is like, don't even bother with them. I don't, Stephen A. Smith, I'm not going to win you over and I don't care. Just stop yelling at us on ESPN radio. And if you're not going to stop yelling, then I'm just going to tune you out because you're not helping. You're just not. And so literally I spent the first 18 months on the road going from team to team to team, understanding each of the team's processes, understanding each owner has their own culture, 
right? Even though they all have to sell tickets and sell sponsors, they're each their own culture, their own people. And I had to understand how they felt about the WNBA. And when I understood that, then I can begin to talk to them about how they can embrace the WNBA and why it worked for their business model. And that took time. That took time. That's, that's huge to be able to have the patience to really deeply listen. I don't know who really deeply listens anymore. And that really is so transformational. You're not only actively listening, but understanding what the rich differences were among those cultures and, and, and engaging everyone. When, when you think about the, the journey that you've taken, you were in a sense forced in that first set of choices to decide what's next because it went away. And so the ice, you know, there's, they call it the burning platform or the iceberg is melting. This was definitely, you know, this may be even a push off the, the top of the Empire State Building that you had to fly. What would be some of the other challenges you've seen other athletes face as they really needed to make the choice and could not because they're so talented and been to and and of course in order to be performing at their highest level they had to be all in they had to be 100 percent. when they didn't feel like getting up they had to get up as you've all done so brilliantly well how do you call the audible? How do you, you know, there's usually, I can't leave now. My team needs me. My board needs me. My customers, my audience, my fill in the blank. I need to be doing this. Uh, what are some of the reasons you've heard resistance and how you thought people have done a, a better job of making the transition? All of those things, by the way. So I, I can look at it from two perspectives. When I was at the WNBA, I worked really hard to create a a mentor program between our athletes and companies. Very well aware that our athletes were not making very much money at all. Very well aware of their competency, everything that athletes, like even to this day, I love hiring athletes. I love, because I know what goes into being an athlete in terms of time management, self-discipline, ex, you know, excellence. There's just so many qualities. And so I would find companies and I want, and I also wanted to create relationships with our athletes. And as you so rightly said, Mark, a lot of them were like, I can't divide my time. I'm not ready to do this. And a tremendous lack of confidence in placing themselves in another sphere that they weren't training for, even though they were being welcomed in and, and were going to be trained. And I could never make the matches work at a, at a scale I thought was. So now what happens is we have athletes. As a matter of fact, I get references all the time. This was a woman who was a swimmer, highest level national swimmer. What do I do with my life? Where do I go? Um, I got invited to a, lot, a couple years ago, like there was a bunch of NFL players. They wash out so quickly, right? So unbelievably dedicated. And they have no other resources. Where do they go? Um, so there's all these different levels of where your mind is as an athlete. That lets you that that is one. Am I ready to take on something else? Because if I am saying that, am I then admitting that I am not either good enough, ready to leave what I have been so passionate about? And that's a really hard decision. Did you find that any of the people who've made the better transitions uh, invest somehow in the new world, either exploring these new? opportunities or I don't know going back to business school or deciding to become a physician you know what was uh, 
what, what would you say would be uh, examples of some of the folks that had the most elegant? Well, you know, it's interesting when you're an athlete. I mean, like if you look at the golfers, think about golfers. They play a pro-am in a different city every single week. Think about the level of business people they're exposed to. And if, and you know what? It's, it, it's incredible. So you have to, and that's the other thing I try to teach our athletes. Like I would introduce them to everybody. So how did these athletes, the ones that made the really good traditions, understood that they were in a new team sport. Well, they're in the same team sport, but they're in the team sport of life now. And that it was time for them to reach out to people who've met who wanted to know them and to use their platforms to make introductions for themselves and to learn. And everyone's, I, I, you know, by and large, everyone's willing to bring an athlete in and talk to them. They really are. And I think people who've done that, people who have spent time educating themselves, whether it's going back to school or taking a training program or doing some reading. I mean, in our group, Pau Gasol, he is an amazing guy. He's not transitioning yet, but boy, is he really thinking about the life he wants to live, the impact he wants to make and who he wants to help him do it. It's extraordinary. I don't know if he thinks he's extraordinary yet, but he is extraordinary. So it's those kinds of, those kinds of skills, which we all have as athletes, we just don't see them in the same light. So it's being able to pivot, pivot senior skills as transferable. And often, often young athletes don't do that. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you're uh, observing a Pau Gasol right now who was with us yesterday, and he was so proud of launching the first major event talking about his foundation and the young people it's serving. And I can't think of a better way for him to practice at scale this new life, if it comes to that. If he's gonna be playing uh, or if he's gonna be serving, he's already exercising those new set of muscles. And he's also, uh, I think, taking the, the breathing classes with his, uh, his, his lady, and they're just about to have a baby a few minutes from now. So oh <laughs> there's also a certain amount of hyperventilation for maybe other reasons other than transition <laughs> that are a part of this uh, as well. When you think about the, 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 the journey that you've had and the, the, the people who are kind of invested in this future, what, what does it mean to kind of build a legacy or an organization that outlives us? Uh, how would you counsel people to think about the, the purpose that you're serving is obviously very much about who you are and is a lot bigger than any of us. Yes. It's funny. I, I watched, you had two terrific CEOs on recently who talked about purpose and how companies who have purpose um, operate much, much more effectively and have greater longevity. Um, and I think that really purpose is at the core of creating great, I don't even want to say that they're businesses. Sometimes I feel like business sounds so transactional. I think when you have a great purpose, you, you transcend transaction. And I know that here I am, I want to sit on a public board. That doesn't sound great, but I do think, I do think it does. I, I think we get beyond thinking about the transactional nature of what we do and we think about the long-term impact of what we do. And, um, and I think that creates, and also nimbility of thinking and being flexible in our thinking um, allows, I think, a, a business to go on and then reiterate and on and reiterate. 
But there's a course, I think there's a really central core that is a fuel. It's that, like that little, um, the fuel cell that keeps something running for a long time. Mm. Well, Donna, you've been, um, you've been filling our hearts and souls with some inspiration wow. around what each of us could do to step up to that deeper sense of passion and purpose. And uh, we're grateful for you to take the time to help uh, our community learn more today. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.